Hey guys, it's Gary Vaynerchuk, and this is the Gary V Audio Experience. On this keynote, Gary talks about some of the largest challenges in building a wine, retail, and e-commerce business, producing content at scale on emerging platforms, and how to hold yourself accountable from all angles. I'm Chris Freilich. I'm a partner at First Round Capital. We're uh, one of the most active seed stage uh, technology investors. We've been doing it for 11 years. We've backed over 350 companies. Proudly, one of them is Performline. Uh, I led the investment and was on the board for a while back, starting in 2008, and it's really amazing to see what's, what, what, uh, what the company and just the whole industry has moved into today. But I want, I want to let Gary introduce himself, and I, I'd ask you to take it from two, two angles, Gary. Um, okay. you, you've been in the alcohol business, yes. and you, uh, you work with a lot of clients that have to deal with compliance at VaynerMedia. Maybe you could just talk a little bit about those and your history in that. Sure. So. Uh Good afternoon, everybody. Uh, I, I, I was born in the former Soviet Union. Um, my dad got a job as a stock boy in a liquor store in New Jersey and eventually owned a shop in Springfield, New Jersey. I grew up in that business. Uh, and I mean, really grew up like first generation immigrant merchant, you know, starting at 13 every weekend and every summer vacation, I schlepped cases in that, in that store. Uh, fell in love with the wine collecting culture, transitioned my dad's business from shoppers discount liquors into uh, winelibrary.com, one of the first e-commerce wine businesses in America, and, and grew that business from a three to a $60 million business in a five-year period on digital marketing, later social media marketing. It's the best thing that ever happened to me. I used to cry that you know, the state of Texas would send me a letter and FedEx wouldn't accept our packages and we would lose $3 million in revenue overnight that the three-tier system and prohibition in America has created a really difficult environment for retailers to be successful because the wholesalers are giving kickbacks to politicians to keep people from shipping into states and creating real American dynamics. And it was very tough. What I didn't realize was having those experiences and those scars in my 20s would really help me later in my mid-30s when I started a company called VaynerMedia, which I'm actively the CEO of right now, we're a 650 person social and digital shop. Uh, and we work with Chase, uh, and we work with you know, Diageo and Anheuser-Busch InBev, and we work with uh, over-the-counter and uh, pharma clients. And social, we were an early social media shop, you know, 2009, dealing with like, if, even if a person tweeted about it, let alone the account, it would scare people. And so, you know, at this point, I, I, I'm excited about this talk because, um, you know, I have some passionate points of view on what's actually happening in worlds that have more regulation and more compliance. I've also, as somebody who has, you know, gotten some awareness in the space, has spent a lot of time in Washington with uh, the people that are writing the laws and things of that nature. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I feel very cozy in this environment. As a marketer, um, I think I've been marketing tough uh, environments for a long time, and I have a lot of empathy. Uh, but a lot of pent-up anger at this room. So, so <laughs> we'll get to how marketers have ruined everything later. Okay. But um, the, the, how do you how do you think about the tension between like you know when I think of Gary Vee, I think more of you know ask forgiveness, not permission, putting it out there first. And how do you deal with a world that deals in strict compliance and finding the right balance? You know, it's interesting. Again. And I think this is super important because I think I'm gonna be very aggressive during this talk, but I wanna make sure everybody understands my background. My parents came to this country when they were 20 years old from living in the Soviet Union. 
You know, like, like being scared of City Hall is so deep in my DNA, you couldn't even imagine. Um, it is deeply, deeply, you know, it's funny for the people that know me, that would seem unusual, but I'm the most showman and bravado version of myself on stage when the lights are on and people are looking at me. In my navigating of my businesses, I've been much more a tortoise in a hare's costume. I look the part, but I've been very calculated. I've been obnoxiously patient um, when you really look under the hood. So again, I want to really deploy enormous empathy. I don't think it's fun to get fined. I don't think it's, and let me rephrase, I've owned all my businesses. You work for somebody. Like, you know, you, know, you get fired and you get tarnished and you can't go back into the industry because you get that. Like, I have empathy for it. On the flip side, Enormous amounts of people in compliance use that as the excuse for not being on the offense. And you know, I am, I am suffocated by defense in all parts of running businesses, marketing compliance, and I just think that way too many people revert to a defensive mindset. I think of it, and I have a lot of friends in compliance and big companies, and I'm, I have no interest in losing clients or getting fired or having a bad reputation. I already have the fact that I curse and I'm a showman. The cynicism against me already is something I'm playing against, so we need to be very tight and very strong in how we work with our regulated clients. Um, but I would, for people that like sports, I. Think Think of it as like a defense that has offensive mindset. I'm a big football fan and historically there's been defenses that aren't that great, but they get so many interceptions and turnovers and, and that's kind of how I think about this world, right? A, a defense that should be on the offense. And I think when you take that mindset that um, you're, you're trying to score as well, you're trying to move the needle, like what do you do for a living? You know, you know you're trying to help the business grow and just settling in to not acknowledging what's happening in the outside world because that's the difficult thing. Your, your grandparents and the generation before you had it a lot easier in compliance. The rules were pretty baked for quite a while and the platforms were set in stone. I'm sorry that the world is changing, but it is and, uh, and I think that um, I don't have a whole lot of empathy for laziness and dwelling and just settling in because it's just a losing mentality. So, so to that end, uh, you, you advise a lot of big brands on how to think about the latest social platforms. You've yes. Been early on a lot of them, you caught Twitter before most people did. You're, you asked me when we walked in, am I snapping and Snapchatting? Can, can you talk about how you got, you know, how that got to your level on the platforms and how you help brands I, navigate? I, I think that I, what I finally realized how to answer this question is in the following, I'd be curious to see how you guys think of this. I think what's ended up happening in my life is that I day trade attention. And what I mean by day trading attention is when you're marketing or trying to tell a story, I mean whether you're trying to be the president of the United States or raise money for your NGO or your bake sale at your school or sell bottled water or whatever you're trying to accomplish in life, first you need somebody's attention and then the creative is the variable of your success. I believe that all my success, and again, I grew up, you know, just to give you guys context, my dad's liquor store was doing $3 million a year on 10% gross profit. We had $300,000 a year before expenses. And in five years, I grew that business from three to $60 million in sales with no M&A, no venture capital. What I did was I made every penny in marketing work like $1,000. What did that mean? In 1997, 1998, that meant email marketing. Nobody was doing it. 
for, how many people here have done email marketing or have looked at email marketing in their careers? Just raise your hands, just curious. Oh, great. In, in 1998, I had a 200,000 person email newsletter that had 91.3% open rates. <laughs> because nobody was doing it. The day Google AdWords came out, I bought the word wine and owned it for nine months before anybody bid me up from the five cent minimum back then. So my career, and I didn't realize this at the time, Chris, my career was, and I was doing direct mail and radio and all these other things, but it was finding these openings where things were underpriced while corporate America or people that had real money to spend on advertising were debating or didn't even acknowledge email marketing, Google AdWords. And then my career, as you know, took a real big turn when YouTube came out. YouTube came out, it was four or five months old, I'm like, this is gonna be a big deal. And I started a wine show. It was the first time I didn't do advertising, it was the first time I did content. Um, and it changed my career, my business. I used Twitter to build that show. That to me seemed underpriced. That's when I first started investing. Tumblr, and this has been my career. So I day trade attention. I don't predict people, I've had a good track record, so people are like, I don't think I'm fucking Nostradamus. <laughs> I, I, think, I think what I do well is I move very quickly. Snapchat's been talked about for two years, Chris. Yeah. Like, it's not like I moved so fast. I just move a hair earlier than the market, but I move hard. It's binary. Either I'm doing it or I'm not. And if I'm doing it, I'm producing content at scale. If I'm doing it, I'm spending two, three hours a week, two, three hours a night, two, three hours a day trying to figure out if Musical.ly crosses over and goes older. How well Facebook video is actually, I think Facebook video is the underpriced attention in the marketplace right now. That's not the newest thing. It's just something that's underpriced right now. So I basically look, I intuitively, no different than somebody who hears a voice and thinks they're a star, I intuitively watch what people are doing. I mean, who lives in America today in 2016 and doesn't understand that the mobile device is the single most important communication tool and consumption tool and content distribution tool in our society? Yet brands and startups and individuals continue to spend money uh, on places where the attention is dwindling because the reporting or the justification internally allows for it. And then entrepreneurs and uh, affiliate marketers and things of that nature, they're in the sales business. It's all conversion, it's all math. There's a very big difference between being a branding and marketing lead engine and a sales lead engine. Why did I buy these sneakers? <laughs> I didn't buy them because Nike fucking cookied me on a website and remarketed me and I finally gave up and bought it on their site. I have no idea why I bought these and that's what branding and marketing is. You like that I like one? That. Yeah, I like that a lot. <laughs> like, I'm gonna use like that. Khrushchev. I'm gonna use that It's my sometime. Russian DNA. <laughs> Um, so, what, what advice do you give to your clients when there's a new platform, like when to engage and how? Should they look at it as ASAP. customer service or marketing ASAP. or? And I'll tell you why ASAP. Do I think a business that is marketing to 40 to 60 year olds should be on Snapchat right now? Yes and no. No, because their clients aren't on it yet. Yes because they're going to be, and when you're a big fucking company, spending tens of thousands of dollars to be ready for when the market comes to you is a very good idea. It's very hard to win a marathon without going on the treadmill and preparing for it. You're kind of an expert on Twitter. What would you do if you ran the company? They seem to have flattened a bit and are getting passed by 
everybody. Everybody. What yeah. would you What would you do if you were them? T Twitter has a really interesting. So Twitter is the only social network. What about that? What about that for a statement? Twitter is the only social network. If you look at the behavior right now of people, basically every other platform has become a content push platform. They're content platforms. They're pushing content and there's very little social engagement from the person pushing the content and then in the comment section. I do it on Instagram, I reply to my snaps, but the percentage of people that do that is almost non-existent. And so Twitter is built actually much more for listening and talking than for talking. And that has been their problem because the money is in talking and monetizing against that. And so I think Twitter, first of all, more than anything, has the potential to be the single best data company in the world, right? Like, like if Twitter actually had Facebook's data on age, sex, location, and a little bit more, they would literally be the most valuable company to so many of us because people go there still. When, if something good, very good or very bad happened right now, you go to Twitter. That's where you give your two cents on the world. That's when you see where people talk about. So I would reverse engineer the business outright. I thought the most interesting thing that happened with Twitter in the last three, five years, but it happened very recently is, I don't know if you saw this, I don't know if you saw this. Uh, did you see that they reclassified it in the app store as a news app and not a social network? Yeah. I think that's very subtle and very interesting and actually gives me tremendous hope. You know, Twitter's like, Twitter's like my first love in high school, right? Like it was so big for me, it changed my life. So I always say emotion and romance is the quickest way to go out of business, so I try not to deploy it, but I'd be lying if I didn't have a, you know, a cheering stick for it. I'd like to see them win, uh, do better. Here's what I do know. If I decided tomorrow that I wanted to build a startup for the first time in my career, the first thing I would build is I would try to build a Twitter clone that basically did what Facebook did to MySpace, I would try to do to Twitter. Twitter as a thesis with several two, four, five core tweaks would be one of the most important, like it is now and would be absolutely the number one or two most important platforms in the world. We, as a society, need a water cooler and that's why Twitter, even though it didn't innovate for four years, yeah. it, it, even though it might be fourth now as we look at the, that ecosystem, is still essential and needed. Like There will always be a Twitter, I just don't know if it's gonna be Twitter. So when you think about the next platforms and things that are coming around the corner, I, I, I know I've been pitched chatbots and messaging comp startups at a pace like I haven't seen before. I literally had four meetings last week how do, you, how do you look at that world when you see what's going on with Messenger? That's gonna work. Google just announced, like, yeah. how do, and, and how do you, like, it's still emerging, how do, you, how do you suggest to your clients how they think about it? Again, if you're, if you're a fa startup founder, small team, little company, you watch and you wait till a little more scale happens, you as a human should watch, stop watching, you know, House of Cards a couple, for a few minutes and actually learn it. You know, like the thing that blows my mind is how many people try to navigate and want success as an entrepreneur or a business executive and actually aren't using these products. Like to be sitting in this room and, and have ambitions for yourself within your organization or outside or with your own thing and not to actually know what's going on with Facebook Messenger and bot culture, to not actually have a Snapchat account and use it, to not actually be doing these things is really grossly negligent. Like the world is being completely taken over by technology and I'm just 
flabbergasted at best by people having opinions on these things without ever using them. Like, bot culture is real. There's a place called China. You might have heard of it. It's very easy to understand how it works. The WeChats and the lines and things of that nature. Asia, this works. We waste a lot of time on human inefficiencies. This wonderful company has helped solve that macro problem in this industry. Like, there are a million things that humans answer on a phone and via email every day that absolutely can be solved by these messenger bots and they will be solved by these messenger bots and it's probably a good idea for you to know what's going on in that world. It's obviously hot in our world. Everybody, every kid who's smart enough to understand trends are often very good to jump on because you can get funded because you and I are desperately trying to get in that early because the upside is great if you find that one diamond in the rough. Um, so there's a lot of jokers and a lot of pretenders that are ch- chasing the bot culture game. Yep. But Facebook Messenger is real. The bot culture within that environment is gonna be real. And uh, Slack and Gchat and this is real. And so I'm paying attention. I, uh, I love human behavior. I reverse engineer human behavior. I know that you love time more than you realize. That you give up privacy and money at scale in return for time. I know that everybody in this room has ordered an Uber in New York City and has watched unlimited cabs drive by them while they've waited for their Uber because Uber sells the perception of time saving, not even time at times. So the bot culture is gonna work because it is an enormous arbitrage on time savings and we will all take advantage of that in a B2B and a B2C environment. Now, when do we at scale start getting comfortable with that? 24, 36, 48 months, I'm not sure. Let me shift things a little bit. Uh, Alex talked about culture in the opening session. W- what are some of the key touch points of culture for Vayner, you know, for Vayner and values? Like, what, what do you, what do you uh, point everybody towards? Well, I think first and foremost, culture is a dictatorship. And what I mean by that is every company's culture is completely predicated uh, and should be held completely accountable to the CEO of the company. Like. I fundamentally believe that every issue in my company is my fault, and I truly believe that most companies' culture is a complete replication of its founders, her or his DNA. And so for me, we're fast, you know, we're sloppy at times, uh, we really give a shit, we, we value selling stuff over everything, there's no awards for that's pretty or that's, you know, we we acknowledge things that are subjective, which I think kills corporations and companies all the time. The amount of time that you've spent in your life debating things that are completely subjective would break your heart if you actually analyzed it. Um, and, uh, And for me, I'm trying to guilt everybody into being with me forever. And so what that means is I'm deploying, <laughs> I'm serious, I'm deploying a very hardcore 5149 strategy. I'm mapping every person that works for me one by one. Some are motivated by money, some are motivated by travel time, challenges, titles, work-life balance, vanity. I literally don't give a shit what they value. I just wanna know what it is so I can reverse engineer it and give it to them and I'm also completely aware that it changes every fucking day potentially. And so that's what I'm trying to build. The number two person in my company is Claude Silver. She's the chief heart officer 
We are fundamentally an EQ over IQ organization. I value emotional intelligence over skills every day of the week. Skills are becoming commoditized very, very, very quickly. Um, and so I, I value retention. I want people to be around forever. Um, I over communicate. I'm, uh, I'm very into warm and fuzzies, like high fives and hugs and fucking all that shit. <laughs> and I'll tell you why, and I'll tell you why. And I think it's an interesting insight. I believe that if I walked across the street and started Gary Media, that I would put VaynerMedia out of business in two years. And so with that egotistical of a point of view, I'm suffocated by negativity, thus I have to cut it out at scale underneath me. And that is, we have by accident, based on DNA, created a really great culture because I need to be fed in the feelings that I need to do what I do. You know, I, you know, I think people are very confused about, this is a very weird place to go in a very weird sports analogy and I apologize, but I think Scottie Pippen is the single most overrated basketball player of all time. And I'll tell you why. I think people are very, very, and I think this is, I think you may know where I'm going, I'm, I'm, I'm reacting to you, but like, it is stunning, my friends, in business, how few people actually drive a business. And I mean like Pepsi, and like Coke, and like Apple, and like Google. It is stunningly more top heavy than people will admit and understand. And in that environment, I think that needs to be reconciled. And so I'm very thankful that my mom has the greatest DNA of all time and I took that shit. Uh, and and um, it's been very big for us because I didn't realize how fucked up the agency world was um, and how, how like tarnished all my employees, the cynicism that my employees come into my organization with. And, I, and I, I, I literally hate cynicism more than anything. It's been very difficult for me, um, but we're chipping away at it. So I was uh, looking up the first time I met with you. It was back in 2009, and uh, you could only fit me in at 9 p.m. And it got, it got moved three times. It was 9.45 at like somewhere in Times Square. Okay. And you were back to back with like 15 minute meetings. Take us through a day in the life of Gary Vee. <laughs> what do you do? When do you get up and talk about your, uh, like, because I, I think it's interesting how you approached your health as one element to that. So first and foremost, especially since so very few of you know who I am, I'm gonna, I'm, this is very important to start this story with the following. Everybody needs to do what's right for them. Like, I'm about to tell you how I roll, and a lot of you are gonna think that's fucked up. Um, and I, empath and I, I think you're right. I just, I just know who I am, and I know what is right for me, and it evolves. Um, uh, so I have no interest in imposing my way on anybody in this room. Look, I, you know, I wake up very early. You know, I wake up at six, six thirty. I work out. Two years ago, I started taking care of my health. I'll get into that first in a second. Look, I work from seven. 30 a.m. till 11.30, 12, 12.30, every single day, five days a week, um, all the time, always. And it's because I think hard work is a, is a prerequisite if you want to have big time results. I can't wrap my head around. No, I love when my friends are like, Gary, you work so hard, um, but I work smart. You know, it's important to work smart. And I'm like, okay, Rick. I work smart too, and I work hard. Now what, fuckface? <laughs> like, I'm, I'm stunned, I'm stunned by people's 
absolute desires to figure out some shortcut into the actual work. Like hour lunches, watching four minute YouTube videos in the middle of the day. Like, like, and again, everybody here has their thing. Like, I'm a workaholic. It's what drives me. I have two young children. I, I, I and my wife, and we communicate about this a lot, decided we're gonna try to win in the extremes. I work very hardcore. I shut down on the weekends. I now take seven weeks vacation, which is insanity, two in, two in August, two in December, because the rest of you are off too, and I like that. It makes me, I literally have pressure when I'm on vacation. I know the rest of you are working. It's just my hard wiring. I wish it wasn't the case. I super could get my head around how awesome it'd be to work nine to five and be part of the dart team and fucking watch fucking Netflix. Like, I, you, know, <laughs> you know, I'm into that in theory. It's just not who I am. I would suffocate in such an environment. And so, yeah, I mean, you know, I pump out a lot of volume of work. um, And it's because it's my oxygen. It's who I am. Um, But it might not be who I am in two years, you know. Seven and four for my kids is a lot different than, you know, four and one. They're starting to become interesting. And, uh, and, and, uh, And so it will evolve. And I have no clue where I'll be. But just talk about how you weaved in writing books, getting healthy, uh, D-Rock following you around, like just share some of those things. I think Yeah, I mean, look, I think, I think people like to talk shit and then their actions don't back it up, right? Like, and so I am really good at not doing that in business, but I was not doing it in certain places and I just decided to take care of my health. I had no idea in a world where every minute is blocked and, and that kind of disrespect to your business contemporaries of moving three meters, like I hate, I hate even hearing that shit. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I didn't think I had an hour to work out, and then it was really an hour and a half because you gotta change, and this, like, I was like, Imp- impossible. Um, but then just sitting on a plane, I was like, I'm gonna die. Like, I'm not doing anything right, and that's gonna suck because I'm really, I've got some shit to get done. So I, uh, I just, ma- really, and I said it earlier, it's binary, I- I've, I've really, gotten to a place in the last five years where I realized things are either A or B, right? I decided my health was important, so I hired a full-time employee. I was not accountable to myself. I was not able to motivate myself. But I realized in my whole life, to my family, to my employees, to the market, to entrepreneurship, I'm really good at being held accountable to outside sources. I'm good, I don't need to, I don't like competing with myself, but I like competing with everything else. And so, I just hired a full-time, I mean, it was a crazy investment financially. I hired a full-time person who just follows me around and gives me water. It's the douchiest thing I've ever seen. <laughs> um, he travels with me everywhere. It's, it's the most 1% of 1% stuff. I came from nothing. I hate even talking about it publicly. But it's the only thing that I knew was gonna work, and it worked, and I'm in a much better place. Books, I know that I can't write. Um, but I have four New York Times best-selling books, which makes all my English teachers vomit on themselves. Um, and I do that through audio, right? Like, I like, mm. literally will talk it out. I literally, literally the book that you're gonna all get, like, I literally verbatim said those words. Like, that's how I do it, because I can talk. Yeah. And, and so, I think, I think it comes down to self-awareness. I'm obsessed with self-awareness. I, if I could gift my two children and all of you in this room something, it would be self-awareness. Once you have that, everything changes. If you actually know who the fuck you are, instead of trying to be something you wish you were, everything changes. Everything changes. And I, like all of us, in all our things, have just gotten better. It was naturally there. That's why I punted school as a 12-year-old. I'm 40. 
you know, making $3,000 a weekend selling baseball cards as a 14 year old, it's a lot of money, just to put into context, but getting D's and F's in school meant to all my friends' parents and all my teachers that I was a loser. If I was coming up the game now, I would've been the next Mark Zuckerberg, right? I would've been entrepreneur of the future. I'd be on fucking TV as a 14 year old. So I, I fought the system my whole life because I knew who I was and at an extremely young age was willing to go all in on it and I've just become more and more and more of that. You're, you're all gonna get a copy of uh, Ask Gary V, his latest book. I've read them all, this is his best one. And he'll even sign copies upstairs uh, during lunch, so make sure you do that. And in addition, I'd actually recommend you get the audio version as well because I, I'm an audiobook fiend and I listen, and it was one of the best audiobooks ever. And it sounded like you weren't reading anything. You were actually recreating the book on the fly and you got all your friends to ask questions like, so Seth Godin, Beth Comstock, they, they asked the questions and you asked them and answered them in real time. No question in my mind, I think one of the things that I do worst in the world is read. I'm really bad at it, uh, really slow. And so I've got to now do the audio book, right? And um, <laughs> somewhere after like the fourth one, and I've read th two of my other books audio, I got through them, this is a little bit thicker. And, and, uh, <laughs> and so somewhere around, we have it on film. I've been doing a daily vlog called Daily V. Um, and somewhere in, like after four or five of them, I just go, you know what? I'm, and it was cool, I got a lot of my friends to read the questions to get different voices in there. So I just basically, basically it's a completely different book. It is, it's, uh, it's you basically, wanna, if you like this one, read the other one, which is I'm the same I'm really book. curious, I've been waiting for somebody to say, hey dude, you answered this question this way in the book, but in the audio book, <laughs> you answered this way. I was curious how much it matched up or how much it changed or how did I say it differently? Because literally, I stopped reading it and just answered on the fly. Um, think of questions you've got, because we've got, we've got some time here to go into questions. Um, one of the concepts that you named well that I liked is you talk about the clouds and the dirt. Yes. You want to share, share what that is and talk about the Jets too. <laughs> I want to buy the New York Jets. Um, uh, but clouds and dirt. I think America is very good at selling all of us on how to, makes a lot of money on us on fixing our shortcomings. I think we're sold a lot and buy a lot on the things that we're not good at. Um, and I'm fascinated by that. And so clouds and dirt is how I wish most business people would approach their careers, their businesses, which is the clouds are like, what's your North Star? Like, what are you about? Like, to me, I wanna buy the New York Jets, but the process of trying to buy them is my clouds. If I'm in a position where I'm able to aspire through my actions and activities to get there and be able to affect other entrepreneurs in a better way to do it, because I think entrepreneurs are sold a lot of shortcuts and there's a lot of bad versions of it, that's kind of my clouds. How do I build the honey empire. How do I build one of the billion dollar empires of all time doing it in a nice way? I was very affected by Steve Jobs' passing and narrative. I, I don't know if you noticed this, maybe we, different circles of this, but I actually saw startup founders start becoming meaner because they thought that was cool because that's what Steve Jobs did and they started like taking on that persona and pushing their developers and people mm -hmm. in a fabricated way. I kind of weirdly, dream of the reverse of that. If I can achieve enormous status, if I can have that, he was six years old and he couldn't aff afford a Jets t-shirt for 25 bucks to buying the whole team and then the way I did it was by being a good guy and doing the right things by my people that I would 
you know, inspire entrepreneurs that came in the next 20, 50, 100 years to be a good person to build an empire, that's, very, that's my clouds. My dirt is, I'm super not interested in being fancy. I'm willing to work. I work harder than everybody in this room and I swear on my fucking life, I'm positive. Because you can only tie me. And so I'm just not fancy. Like I'm gonna win and I'm gonna continue to win and I'm gonna be real fucking big. And I'm never gonna forget what I'm about and I like getting my hands dirty and I'll answer that email and I'll stop and have that conversation and I'll take that pitch and I do unscalable, not the right use of my time shit 50% 50% of my day, every day for the rest of my life because I love the fucking dirt. I love the grind. I'll never get fancy. I don't like fancy. And so that's important to me. We've, we've got time for Because, some... I apologize, because, yeah. because I, I want to clarify one thing about the dirt because it's important. Because you need to be a practitioner to be good at what you do. I don't want to be a social media guru that reads a headline from somebody else's tweet. I know every fucking thing that Musical.ly, Snapchat, Vine, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram does. Period. And I sit with all these gurus that sell fucking books too and all these fucking social media experts and corporations and starts. I sit with fucking Facebook and Instagram in meetings where their executives are wrong. Like, I'm a fucking practitioner. I really know my shit. And that's important. If you wanna win, you have to be able to do that and way too many people lose that. They forget what gets them there and they're not keeping up with it. And the thing that I do for a living is hard because these platforms are changing every day, every second, and a lot of things change. And the things that were tried and true a week ago change and in that arbitrage, in your headline reading, I make money. Questions? Oh, you got mics? Awesome. What's your name, my man? Hi, Chris Hopkins. Chris. Um, <laughs> ask it so they can hear it. <laughs> so, um, being a practitioner of the dirt, talk to me about how bots are truly making a leapfrog from the natural language understanding of As people. Yes, here. I mean, I, yeah. so I, like you, like to dig deep, yeah. get dirty, get it done. Yeah. Um, I've had the opposite experience with that, which is that the bots, in my mind, are falling way short, and it's all hype. A hundred percent. So let's let's stick with the mic. Stick with the mic. There's there's a difference between, there's the whole game and everything we talked about, day trading attention, VR. The amount of money that VCs are gonna spend on consumer VR over the next 10 years and is gonna go complete to shit is gonna be unbelievable. Because VR is gonna happen it's, in one man's point of view that's been pretty good at predicting timing, it could be 10 to 15 years from now on the consumer side. Like we, in the tech early world, want it to happen, but normal people aren't putting on headsets, the experience isn't there. It's web 1992, it's gonna happen. And I would answer the bots thing the same way. I also, I don't think I've had a good bot experience yet but I've seen good bot experiences in South Korea, I've seen good bot experiences in China, and as you know, and as you know, and as I know, and then some of you may know, this bot conversation's about 40 seconds old in this ecosystem. It's been percolating at Facebook for a little while, right? It's even things like yesterday, they stop allowing mobile chat because they want to force everybody into Messenger, right? The right talent and the right people are in place, the promise is correct, and I think 
people that, you know, you're, if your narrative that you just painted me is correct about yourself, you're probably the person on paper that I'm most fascinated by, which is, which is you actually know what you're talking about, you look at it and you're like, it's all hype. I take such a positive view where I think a lot of my practitioner friends take a negative view. They default into it's all hype, I default into it's just early, and the more I can keep digging into this, by the time it's not hype, it matters. Everybody's like, Facebook's hype. I'm like, you don't understand. It has the attention of every American. Eventually, do you know how many people never thought Facebook would have a billion dollars in revenue, let alone a billion dollars a fucking week? You know, like, so Snapchat. Do you know how many people think Snapchat is hype? When you control the attention of every fucking person, 13 to 25 in a country, you will be a big deal. Because they stay. Facebook showed you. How can you not see this? So I think you're right but I think it'll happen pretty fast. I, my prediction, and, I'm, and I've missed on a lot of, timing's impossible. I actually wait for it actually to happen and then I strike. I'm willing to let the early stuff go. But I do think in 24 or 36 months, we're gonna have meaningful experiences on the leaders, the Googles, the Amazons, the Apples, the Facebooks, not like Wine Library yet, you know, even though I'm hacking at it. Um, but I, I think the infrastructure's there. The tech talent is there. I just think they haven't oomphed it enough yet. I think it's early. So next question, to bring bots back to the theme of this com- conference, okay. if a bot in your New Jersey vernacular fucks up yes. and sends you to China when you were supposed to take a flight to California, how does compliance fit into that, in your, in your opinion? I think the, the most regulated companies will be four to five to seven years behind, just like they always are on anything like that because that sounds scary to a lot of people in this room. Right, okay. And, and the truth is, one thing I've, I've really gotten better at in my public appearances is I try not to talk about shit I don't know. And so, um, you know, I don't know the second or third tier layers to that question, but the first one is anything that doesn't feel controllable is dangerous and thus they're gonna have to watch it and get comfortable with it. I, you know, look, at, at scale, the bots, at scale, a decade from now, properly done, the bots should do a better job than the humans. At little ticky-tack, things of that nature. Right. I think we have time for one more question. And I just wanna go on the record saying I think Gary's wrong about VR. It'll happen faster. There'll be a lot of money lost, but I think it'll be, like, we'll be Let's talk about, let's, let's, let's spend a few minutes here and I'll hang out a little bit longer to okay. sign some books. Let's define happens, because that would be the next part of this question. What, what, how would you define happens if it's faster? If you're saying it's two or three or four or one, maybe we're not, defi- to me. I would say, I think mobile's gonna drive it, and that the phone everyone in this room will be carrying in six to 12 months will be capable of mind-blowing VR with a cheap headset that's at home or at the office. Will they do that? I think they will, yes. I think six to 12 I months. I think they'll watch, you know, I'd say more like 12 to 24, but that soon, not, not 10 to 15 years. So let's talk about that. In 12 to 24 months, how many people? Of this room, what percentage of this room will spend what percentage of meaningful time on consuming content in a VR environment? Give me that answer. I think... Uh, so we can actually have the debate. Yeah, I, w- I would say it's probably in the... You know, I, I think they're spending hours per week in VR. And I'm, and I'm basing that on, I've got all the high-end headsets at yes. home, I watch what my son plays mm-hmm. with it, and it's, it's so unique and different. What percentage of this room? This room? Yeah, not your 14-year-old, yeah. right? Or I don't know how you're your son. Yeah. This room spends 
four hours, or I'll give you two. Two, two hours. Two hours a week on VR in 12 to 14, in 12 to 24 months. 20%. No fucking way. No shot in hell. So my thing is, I'm gonna go the extreme other way. That's one, that's one basketball game, or one football game. I understand. Or one concert. Respect. Um, <laughs> I understand what things in our society take two hours. Um, <laughs> uh, so I think, I think that people grossly underestimate people's insecurities. So I think a stunning percentage of this room never does VR just because they don't want to put on the headset. Just on that. So there's a lot of other variables that we, so I think from a consumer behavior standpoint, there's much more friction than people realize. To make the quantum leap to go into that universe, it's a very big deal. Not for a 14 year old, but for all of us old fuckers that never grew up with it, it's tough. Do you know what percentage of people didn't even wanna go on the internet? What percentage of people didn't wanna get email? What percentage of people didn't wanna switch from a pager to a cell phone? What percentage of people don't wanna download Snapchat? To make All right, the, let me ask you this. Sure. In two years, yes. what percent of this audience will yes. spend two hours a week on Snapchat? Uh, two hours a week on Snapchat. 50. No fucking way. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm kidding. <laughs> so I'm very, very, very bullish on VRN, and from my investing standpoint, I'm gonna invest in a lot of B2B because I'm taking the, the point of view of 1992, 1993, 1991, you know, uh, web. Like, yeah. who's gonna be the Netscape navigator? What's the piping? What's the platform? What do you land on? I actually think VR is gonna be at a place where by the time it's actually mainstream, like real, like people are really doing it, that we will already supersede headsets and we'll be into contact lenses. Yeah, it's AR, that's what really wins. Yeah. I okay, think, I think let's do one more. I know we we're late, I'm, I, but I love Who's putting stress more? on the logistics operators over there. We're good? Hold hey. on, we got one right here. Oh, maybe two, sorry. Yeah, we got you. Yeah. Uh, my name is Dom Jackson. Uh, I want to know, what do you think, how do you measure ROI as, as an influencer to, to show brands that you have capability to add value to them? How do you as an influencer prove to brands that you have ROI capabilities? Yes. That... By challenging them to do something that's black and white to prove your impact. So what most influencers, most influencers like to say it, but when you call their bluff, they're scared, right? They're scared to actually say, you know, do something that has a redemption code or be the only person that promotes this product and whatever moves. One of the reasons my agency in a social media landscape grew from a three to a hundred million dollar business in revenue in four years was I was literally the only person not scared to prove there was ROI in social media. I'm just, I just know it works. I was doing it for my own self, my own wine business. I knew it worked. So when we would walk into a pitch to a Toyota or a Pepsi or an AT&T or you know, those kind of companies, I'm like, what can you do to suffocate me, to call my bluff, to fire us immediately if we don't drive results? And that was it. And then when you understood how much fucking money they were wasting on everything else they did, it became very easy for us to win. So I think you suffocate a media agency or a brand that's considering you into proving that you can drive the results. Because that's what we're talking about, right? Like businesses aren't hitting you up for likes. They're not looking for 800 fucking hearts. They wanna sell shit. So show me. Thank you. You're welcome. I think we'll do one more. Tom, yeah, my name's Tom, you're awesome. Just keep being you, man. Um, uh, I run an agency, a digital agency in Pittsburgh. Um, 
and I've got my, the hardest part of my day is not uh, getting in the dirt, doing the advertising, trying to be a, a thought leader or a partner to my, my employees. The hardest part of my day is talking to partners and clients in terms of not shifting, but you're spending half your budget on billboards. You're doing these things that were invented, you know, thousands of years ago. And from a compliance standpoint, from a the, the dangers that they perceive on the interweb or whatever their rationale is, how do you have those conversations with your clients, your giant clients who... I'm going to give you a really good piece of advice yeah. that I really hope you execute against because it will Please. change your business. I have never tried to sell anybody on the shit that I believe. I've just spent time on trying to figure out if they agree with me and if they don't, I get the fuck out of there and find the next person that does. The number one mistake that agencies make is they spend way too much time trying to convert people to spend money with them when a lot of times they might actually, I would tell you any normal common sense person actually fully agrees with you, but the infrastructure of that organization doesn't allow them to do that behavior and thus even if they agreed with you one billion percent and you were the best dude they ever met, you're never gonna get that money. So I would just actually not waste my time on that and I would go find the next person that may. Amen, thank you. Good advice. Thank you guys. On that, wrap it up, thank you Gary. And two, hit me up on the DM. It's going down on DM.